1: Здравствуйте, and welcome to the history of Russia. This is episode 28, State of the Nation 2. Thanks for listening in. Okay, so last time we looked at the second part of Ivan the Great's long reign, which saw the Grand Prince or the Sovereign of all the Rus', as he was now styled, only by himself established complete autocratic control over the running of the state, and saw Moscow, via its invasion of Lithuanian territory, become the paramount regional power. But without any doubt, the absolute highlight of the last episode was my attempt to pronounce Constantinople, something I've done with mixed success about 189 times before, but this time the curse of the Byzantines struck with a vengeance, and left me completely tongue-tied. Anyway, and luckily for me, the city by the Bosphorus is now called Istanbul, which hopefully shouldn't present any problems going forward. This week we'll be doing the second State of the Nation, plus we'll cover the reign of Ivan's son, Vasily III, which will take us up to the year 1533. So there's no admin or blatant self-promotion this week, so let's get straight into it and do some history of Russia. So back in episode 10, I did the first State of the Nation, which encompassed two main themes. The first was a kind of checkpoint or retrospective on how Kievan Rus, remember that, had developed over its first 150 years from its semi-mythical beginnings back in the year 868, through to the introduction of Christianity into the Rus' lands, and the rule of Vladimir the Great, which ended in 1015. And then secondly, we took a look at what kind of place the Rus' state was from a basic cultural perspective, in an attempt to get some kind of feel for what it was like to live there, and how it all worked. Well, that was the aim anyway. So this time, rather than look at the cultural aspects in day-to-day life, we're going to look at the key events that have taken place since the first state of the nation. And then we're going to focus on the impacts of the 240-year-long Mongol occupation. I was also hoping to cover the high-level geopolitical situation this week, but time got the better of me, and so I'm going to do that at the beginning of the next episode. Okay, let's remind ourselves of what took place over the last 500 years. Don't worry, if that sounds a bit daunting, but I'll try my best to keep everything as concise as possible. So it all started with Yaroslav the Wise, who was in charge between 1019 and 1054, a period which saw the start of Kiev's golden age, and witnessed the introduction of the first Rus' law code, the Ruskaya Pravda, and also took in the eventual defeat of those troublesome nomads, the Pechenegs. Then we had Yaroslav's three sons attempt to rule as a triumvirate, with mixed results, it has to be said, and the appearance of the Kumans, another group of steppe nomads who were to be an almost constant pain in the Rus' backside. Vladimir Monomak's short reign between 1113 and 1125 coincided with the end of Kiev's golden period, and then between 1125 and 1169 things went pear-shaped. Kiev became a backwater, Byzantine trade dwindled, and the focus of attention moved northwards to Vladimir, under the leadership of Yuri Dolgoruki, and Novgorod and its Quasar Republic. And then between 1176 and 1212, Vladimir consolidated its position under the auspices of the superbly named Vsevolod Big Nest and his numerous sons. The Mongols announced their arrival under the two generals Subutai and Jebe at the Battle of the Kalka River in 1223. The Cumans were defeated and then in 1237 Batu Khan's invasion started and by 1240 the entire Rus'skaya Zemla had been conquered by the Golden Horde. Now this Mongol occupation, or Tata Yoke, lasted in one form or another for almost a quarter of a millennium and featured, towards its middle and end, the rise of Moscow, the start of the Rus' fight back against the Mongols under Dmitry Donskoi, the expansion of Lithuanian rule into the southern and western parts of the Rus' lands, Lithuania's union with Poland, civil war in Muscovy and a spate of blindings, the collapse of the Byzantine Empire, the disintegration of the Golden Horde, and the swallowing up of Novgorod. And so now, in 1505, Moscow stands at the top of the pile. It heads up the Orthodox Church, the appanage system is effectively dead, a large chunk of the land taken by Lithuania is now back in the hands of the Rus, and Ivan's autocratic regime has laid the foundations of the first truly Russian state. So that's what happened. The next step is to analyse cause and effect and come up with some kind of meaningful rationalisation of the underlying themes and present a reasoned and concise conclusion? Or, in other words, why did those events happen? The beginning and end of Kiev's golden age in the late 11th century and the earliest 12th coincided with the reigns of two particularly powerful rulers, Yaroslav the Wise and Vladimir Monomok. Both kept the worst excesses of the Apennine system at bay, and saw the Petenegs finally dealt with, during Monomarch's rule, mainly by being cleverer and more ruthless than any of their contemporaries. In between Yaroslav's and Vladimir's time in charge, you had the Triumvirate, a period which saw a series of weak leaders who continually fought against one another, a situation which the newly emboldened Cumans were more than able to take advantage of and then rinse and repeat. After Monomak's death, the Rus princes embarked on a half-century of internecine warfare, which allowed the Cumans to raid almost at will, and caused Kiev to slowly fall apart. To put it simply, it was a free-for-all. Vsevolod Bignest held things together for a while, but by that time Novgorod was off doing its own thing, and the feuding started up again right at the time When the Mongols appeared on the scene. And the threat that the Khans posed was either not understood, or ignored, or both. Take the Battle of Kalka River in 1223, for example. Only three of the key Rus princes turned up, with Vladimir, the city that is, simply ignoring the call to arms. And the rest, as they say, is history. So headline news, and to state the obvious, Things went badly when the Rus were disunited and in the hands of a weak leader. And conversely, things tended to go better when the Rus were united under a strong ruler. Now this dynamic wasn't just a feature of Rus' leadership. Practically every medieval European state had experienced the same or a similar situation at some point in their history. But it was magnified in Kiev, Vladimir, Moscow and the other principalities... For three main reasons, number one, the loose, uncentralized structure of the Ruiskaya Zemla number two the ge- the geographical location of the Rus state lying as it did directly to the west of the Eurasian steppe and its multitude of raiding nomadic tribes, and then finally, number three, the number of different principalities and the plethora of sons, uncles, brothers, and cousins who were all striving for positions of power, either regionally or nationally. One of the things, however, that most other medieval European states hadn't experienced was two and a half centuries of occupation by a foreign power. So now we're going to spend some time looking at how that impacted the Rus, and not just in political and administrative terms, but also in terms of language, art, religion and culture. But before we get going on this section, I want you to bear in mind that the accepted or received wisdom around how the Mongol occupation impacted things is that it stalled or stopped Russia going through the Renaissance, thereby stopping its development along mainstream European lines and allowing a more Asian outlook and culture to take root. So let's see if that's true, and we'll start at the beginning with the invasion and the initial stages of the occupation, and the events which set the scene for what was to follow. So we know from previous episodes that the Rus could have, and should have, been more prepared for the 1237 invasion. And maybe they could have stopped it from happening in the first place. But for whatever reason they didn't, they completely underestimated the threat posed by the Mongols, and so when it did come, they were deeply terrorised by the scale and violence of the onslaught. The Mongol invasion was like a Pecheneg or Cuman raid on steroids. And such was the terror that during the early years of the occupation, the Rus principalities collectively suffered what can be likened to a form of PTSD on a massive level, leaving them almost paralysed and creating a mindset of subservience and insecurity, which allowed the Mongols to exercise complete control with a minimum amount of effort. And therefore, throughout the remainder of the 13th century and for a large chunk of the 14th, the Rus princes concentrated on impressing the Khans and vying for their attention, making it relatively easy for their occupiers to exercise a policy of divide and rule. So how easy was it, and how much effort did the Mongols need to effectively run their newly conquered territory? Initially, quite a lot. Batu Khan appointed two different types or levels of administrators. These were the Baskaki, who were military governors, and Darugi, or civilian governors. And both of them took stock via a census to make sure that things were run as smoothly as possible. But fairly soon after the invasion, with full control exerted, there was no need for the position of military governor, and the horde ran things via decree and a big dollop of fear via a loose patchwork of civilian governors who used the YAM system, a series of staging posts situated throughout the land, typically one day's ride apart, that kept fresh horses and allowed for quick and easy travel. By the standards of the time, plus the handling of important dispatches, And this system survived well past the Mongol period. Now this autocratic system of decree, and bear in mind that pre-Mongol Rus had hardly been a hotbed of democracy, Novgorod apart, had two impacts. In the short term, the lessening of princely power and authority, and then in the long term, the stifling of any kind of democratic consensus-driven governance that outlasted the medieval period, and which some would say has continued through to the present day.
0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: And so with the princes weakened, the Orthodox Church, protected as it was by Mongol policies and laws around religious toleration, stepped into the breach and became a significant temporal power. And to quote from Dustin Hosseini's brilliant and concise treatise, The Effects of the Mongol Empire on Russia, The Orthodox Church would become a powerful beacon during the darker years of the Mongol subjugation. The Russian people would eventually turn inward, seeking solace in their faith, and looking to the Orthodox Church for guidance and support. The shock of being conquered by this steppe people would plant the seeds of Russian monasticism, which would in turn play a major role in the conversion and colonisation of the native peoples in Russia's north and east. And another major impact of the occupation was that it left the Rus gravitated or drawn towards their east. In part that's because all of the main trading routes post the conquest ran from their east, but also, and as we've seen, the Mongols hadn't just disappeared after 1480, and there were a number of successor Khanates that would still be able to provide a problem or two in the century to come. But once their threat had been neutered, there was a huge area of land to the east that was a natural target for Rus expansion, unlike the situation on the western borders, where the territory belonged to other, mainly Slavic European peoples, who'd been settled for centuries. Okay, finally for this section, we come on to some of the softer cultural impacts of the occupation, and we'll start with language. My first thought when I considered the impacts of language was, how did the Rus and the Mongols communicate? Now, there isn't a definitive answer, but I reckon in the absence of a lingua franca, that both peoples could speak as a second language, there must have been a handful of people who could speak or who would have learnt to speak both Russian and Mongolian and who could therefore translate for the rest of the people who couldn't. But anyway, I digress. The impact of the Mongolian and Turkic languages was minimal in terms of actually changing the construct of the Russian language, unlike, say, the impacts of Saxon, Old Norse and Norman French when Britain was invaded on multiple occasions. But... Multiple loanwords were introduced, along with some grammatical terms, and there are a large number of place names that are either Mongolian or Turkic in origin. During the early part of the occupation, large numbers of artisans were deported from the Rus lands to other parts of the Mongol Empire, but later, during the 14th century, we see an artistic revival that was driven by the Orthodox Church, and centred around iconography, and the painting of frescoes. Russian folklore, music, customs and traditions were also heavily influenced by the Mongols. And it's said that the Russian custom of hospitality has its roots in in the culture of the Mongol Khans, for whom this was one of the many most respected virtues. And at the day-to-day level, many elements of Russian clothing and food were also Mongol or Tatar in origin. So, let's pause for just a minute. What do we make of all of that, and specifically the perceived wisdom that I mentioned right at the beginning of this section, i.e. that the Mongol invasion-slash-occupation held back the development of Russia and made it more Asian and less European in outlook? Well, as you've probably guessed, opinions differ, with some historians and scholars saying that the impacts were profound, and others stating that they were either minimal or negligible. For me, though, it's hard to ignore the fact that a unique and distinct Rus or Russian culture emerged from the aftermath of the Mongol occupation and that the state moved away from developing along mainstream European lines. We'll see in the coming centuries that whilst the ideas of freedom and justice were gaining strength in Europe, Russia was institutionalising serfdom, and whilst Europe was witnessing extraordinary development and with new ideas and the introduction of scientific methods, particularly during the Renaissance, Russian society was still experiencing a traditional medieval existence based on small-scale agricultural production and trade. But I think that the deepest and longest impact that the Mongol invasion brought to bear on Russian society and state was a deep sense of insecurity, based around the fear of being overrun and subjugated by a foreign power. The Russians were highly divided amongst themselves when the Mongol invasion started, and this brought about their downfall, and demonstrated the necessity of building a strong, centralised state, first to overthrow the Mongols, and then to be prepared and ready for any other incursions by foreign powers, something that Ivan the Great recognised all too clearly, and therefore took the necessary steps to deal with. Okay, that's the state of the nation part of the episode done. Now it's time to take a look at Vasily III, who ruled as Grand Prince of Moscow from 1505, and who is sometimes referred to as Vasily the Adequate due to the fact that his time in charge is sandwiched between the reigns of his illustrious father, Ivan the Great, and his famous son, another Ivan, who we'll get to meet in the next episode. Now, the name the adequate seems a bit harsh, as Vasily was no mug, and did a more than satisfactory job in continuing his father's policies. There's also the fact that for a long time, he wasn't even the running to, in the running to succeed Ivan, and so there were doubts in some quarters about whether he should have been the Grand Prince in the first place. You see, Vasily was Ivan's first son, but from his second marriage, to Sophia. There was an older half-brother, another Ivan, referred to as Ivan the Young, who was ready and waiting to become the next Grand Prince. However, it wasn't to be. Ivan the Young died in 1490, we're told either from gout or complications related to the treatment of gout, and therefore his son, the seven-year-old Dmitri Ivanovich Vnuk, a.k.a. Dmitri the Grandson, now became Ivan the Great's heir. But two people were unhappy with this state of affairs, Vasily himself and his mother Sophia. She wanted her lad to be the next Grand Prince, and over the next few years attempted to persuade Ivan the Great that Vasily was the better candidate. And eventually, in 1502, the ageing Ivan was won over, and poor Dmitri and his mother were thrown into prison, where, incidentally, Dmitri would die in 1509, aged just 24, and three days after he was overthrown, Vasily was named as the new heir. So, when Vasily finally took over, he spent the first part of his reign finishing off what his father had started, taking the fortress of Smolensk, and even more territory from the new king of Poland and Grand Duke of Lithuania, Sigismund who had taken over from his brother Alexander upon the latter's death in 1506. Vasily was equally successful in keeping the various Carnates subdued and pretty much under control, and on the home front he made sure that the Boyars and the Orthodox Church towed the line and dealt with anyone who didn't. But his biggest problem was that by 1526 After 20 years of marriage, no heir to the throne had been produced. Now, around the same time, but 1,500 miles away in London, another ruler, Henry VIII of England, you may have heard of him, was getting increasingly concerned about a very similar situation. And Henry's answer was to put his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, aside, Marry Anne Boleyn, and as a consequence, break away from the Roman Catholic Church. Vasily, however, decided upon a quieter, and some would say a cleverer, course of action. He consulted with his boyars, and despite opposition from the Church, got them to suggest that he ditched wife number one, and marry instead the 16-year-old Yelena Glinskaya, who was the niece of a good friend, And apparently, Vasily was so smitten with his new young bride that he did a very un-Russian thing, or a very un-Russian thing for those times. He had his beard trimmed in an attempt to look younger. And so, new marriage, problem solved. But in fact, it wasn't, because nothing happened for four years and it increasingly looked like Vasily was going to have to name one of his brothers as his heir, something he was loath to do. However, out of the blue, in 1530, a son, Ivan, was born, followed two years later by another son, Yuri, and so the throne was safe. Except again, it wasn't really. Because in December 1533, Vasily died from complications that came about during the treatment of a large abscess on his hip, leaving the now three-year-old Ivan IV as the new Grand Prince of Moscow. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. And whilst you ponder the meaning of that, I'll draw this week's episode to a close. So next time, and at the moment, I'm not sure when that will be, but I am hoping to get another episode out over the holiday period, we'll be taking a look at the first part of the long and remarkable reign of young Ivan IV, or, as he would go down in history, Ivan the Terrible. Anyway, until then, if you and your families are celebrating Christmas on December the 25th, then I hope that you have a very happy and peaceful one. And for all of you out there, whatever you're doing, stay safe, look after yourselves, keep your heads down, and I'll speak to you all soon.